Hey everybody, good Sunday morning to you. Let me ask you a question right out of the chute. Do you wanna bear fruit for God? Is that your heart? Is that why you're uh, engaged with SCF Online uh, today? Because you wanna bear fruit for God. We're gonna look at a verse of scripture that actually talks about that. It's in Romans chapter seven. So if you have a Bible handy, you can uh, flip it open to Romans chapter seven. We're gonna look at a few verses in that chapter. Maybe while you're turning there, I'll take just a moment to uh, kind of put today's talk into some context. So we're in this series that we're calling Untakeable. And in this series, we're looking at things that, uh, uh, truths, um, things that we possess in Christ that cannot be taken away. They're unbreakable, unshakable, untakeable, steadying, anchoring truths, things that we possess in Christ that uh, we can take to the bank. Uh, and absolutely count on. So I've identified four things. Uh, it's a short series. Uh, we could look at a lot more, but uh, the four that we're looking at in this series is the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, our identity in Christ, and the love of God. Four steadying, anchoring truths that hold us firm. Uh, even when other things around us might be changing and seem really uncertain, well, these things we can count on. They're untakeable. So today really is week number four of this series. So in weeks one and two, we talked about the forgiveness of God. Last week, we introduced the grace component in uh, week three, and we actually made two points uh, about grace last week, and we'll just review those very quickly right now. So uh, point number one was God's grace propels godly living. We looked um, to what Paul said to Titus in the book of Titus, chapter two, where Paul says the grace of God not only saves us, it does, we're saved by grace, but Paul says the grace of God also teaches us. Well, what does the grace of God teach us? It teaches us to say no to sin. It teaches us to deny sin, and it teaches us to live godly lives in this present age. And so grace, rather than somehow needing to be balanced with rules, um, grace itself propels us to godly living entirely apart from any rule-based religion. The second point we looked at last week is that God's grace propels strength. So grace, rather than something that weakens, actually strengthens. We looked into the book of Hebrews and the author of Hebrews says that it is good for our heart to be strengthened by grace. Uh, grace strengthens our new heart. And so we wanna make uh, two more points today. Um, and so point number three, or point one for today, however you're keeping score, is this, God's grace propels fruit bearing. That's why I asked that question right off the top. Do you want to bear fruit for God? Is that your heart? Now, speaking of heart, we've used that word a lot in these last few weeks, this phraseology of a new heart, that when you said yes to Jesus as Savior, yes to a personal relationship with Christ, that Jesus came into your life, cleaned house, moved in, gave you a new heart that is compatible with him. Uh, it's an amazing surgery, right? Your old heart of sin gone, and you have a new heart that is compatible with Christ. Um, Paul actually talks about that in surgical terms in Romans chapter two. 
and he refers to it as the circumcision of the heart. Kind of a weird picture, right? But uh, effective, it paints, it paints the picture for us. So you, Christian, you have a new heart and it is compatible with Jesus. Your new heart looks like Jesus. Paul said to the Colossians, Christ is in you and that is the hope of glory. We looked at the scripture that said, you Christian are a partaker of the divine nature. Christ lives in you. By the way, that is God's will for everybody on planet earth. It is Christ in you in salvation and then Christ through you in attitude and action. It's to know Christ and then to show Christ. That's God's will for uh, everyone. And so the question that we want to learn to ask more and more is not so much what would Jesus do, right? That was a popular church question back in the 90s, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I'm not saying that was a bad question, but we wanna to learn to ask what is Jesus doing? What would Jesus do uh, was almost as if, you know, what would the historical Jesus do if he were here, right? Well, he is here, that's the thing. What is Jesus doing in real time right now? Christ is in you, Christ is in me. What is he doing and how can we cooperate with him in real time? You know, one, um, one way that I think we can uh, see what Christ is up to in the moment, how we can cooperate with him, um, just a simple thing, pay attention to who's crossing your path. Uh, who, who keeps showing up? Who's crossing your path? Maybe more than once. You know, pay attention to that. That is one uh, simple way that Jesus can alert you to what he's up to in the moment. Who's crossing your path? Okay, so Christ is in me. Now I want the outside to match the inside. Jesus has given me this new heart. He lives in me. Now I want Christ to be displayed through me. We've looked at the realities of our new heart and we've looked at verses such as, uh, you know, uh, I am chosen of God, holy and loved. I'm forgiven, I'm cleansed, I've been made righteous. Uh, Christ lives in me. I'm a partaker of the divine nature. Um, and because Christ is in me, we talked last week a little bit about how Jesus has changed what we want. He's changed our desires. In fact, we looked at verses that said, you are eager uh, for good deeds. You are zealous for good deeds. You're eager to do good. In fact, we looked at the words of Paul where he says, you are slaves to righteousness. And so now all of that, which is beautiful and true, we want that to be displayed on the outside. So how do we do that? Grace is the way. Grace is the way for that to happen. Now, maybe you thought it was rule keeping. Maybe you thought, maybe you were taught that keeping the rules is the way to um, display Jesus through your life, that the way to bear fruit for God is by following the rules. Or maybe you thought it was being scared enough of God um, that you could just kind of stay motivated and that's how you'll display Christ and that's how you'll bear fruit for God. Well, for lack of a kinder term, those are, those are lies. Uh, don't buy into those. Don't buy into the lie that fear is somehow gonna motivate you to bear fruit for God. 
And don't buy into the lie that some kind of a mix of grace and rules um, is going to somehow motivate you either. I know, um, I know Christians who, who uh, think that you know, they want to balance grace with rules. Like grace is great, but uh, we, need, we need some checks and balances. Uh, we need to balance it so it doesn't go uh, running amok. Uh, so we need to balance it with some rules. Now, I don't know any Christian who wants to balance grace with all 613 rules of the Old Covenant, but I know quite a few Christians who seem like they want to balance grace with 10 of those 613 rules. Well, maybe not 10 because they like to work Saturday, so maybe nine. So maybe grace balanced with the, the nine commandments. Don't fall for that. Don't buy into that. I really believe that that's a lie. And don't buy into the notion that a little bit of law is a good thing, a little bit of guilt is a good thing. It's not, don't buy into that. Fruit bearing, being fruitful for God, is not propelled by rule keeping. It's not propelled by religion. Um, it's not propelled by uh, performance-based living. Fruit bearing, being fruitful for God, is not propelled by fear or uh, wrath or judgment. You know, the scripture actually teaches us that godly change occurs in our lives, not, not because of the wrath of God, not motivated by the wrath of God, but motivated by God's kindness. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter two and verse four says that it's not the wrath of God that leads to repentance, but the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Repentance, metanoia, a new way to think that leads to godly change. It's motivated not by God's wrath, but by God's kindness, his undeserved favor. So we're gonna look at some scriptures today, as I mentioned, from Romans chapter seven. And I think we're gonna see today kind of what we saw last week, that God has an entirely new way for us to live, and it's the way of grace pure grace from start to finish. Now, I just said that, I just used the phrase undeserved favor and it just reminded me that um, perhaps you don't have a simple definition of grace. Um, undeserved favor is how I think of grace. It's a, it's a simple two word uh, definition of grace. There are other definitions that are good, but that one's really simple and I would, I would commend it to you. God's grace is his undeserved favor. You know, we could even take a step back just a little bit from that and say that God is love. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. That's his DNA. Love is the only thing that the scripture says that God is. And you might be thinking, well, I thought the scripture said God is holy. I thought the scripture said God is grace. It does. But if you think of it like this, if you if you think about eternity past, when it was just God, before the creation of people, before the creation of the heavens and the earth, when it was just God in eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit, dwelling together in perfect relational oneness, in triune unity, in perfect relational love, the only thing that you could say that God is, is love. In eternity past, you couldn't say that God is holy because holiness is a relational concept. It means to be set apart. And in eternity past, there were none others from whom to be uh, set apart. And in eternity past, you could not say that God is grace because grace too is a relational concept. Grace requires the presence of 
one who is undeserving. In, et in eternity past, there, were, uh, there was not the existence of those who were undeserving. That's us. That, uh, that's where we come in. We are the ones who are undeserving. And so God, in his love, loves you. He loves me. He ascribes worth to you, unsurpassable worth. And out of his love flows grace, undeserved favor, his compassion, his kindness, his patience, his mercy. All of those are expressions of his grace, undeserved favor. At Blue Water Church, which is uh, Sobel's daughter church in Concordia, Ontario, where I had the privilege of being the, the pastor for a number of years, one of the things that we reminded each other of all the time was to be grace first. Uh, we had four guiding ideas for the ministry there, and one of them was grace first. And the idea was that whenever we encountered people, even people for the very first time, we wanted to encounter them with grace first, undeserved favor. We wanted to replicate the love of God that is manifested in undeserved favor. That's how we wanted to engage with people, grace first. That doesn't mean we had something else second. No, it was grace first, grace last, grace uh, all the way start to finish. You know, some people I think have a, uh, even some Christian people have a mistaken idea about grace, that grace is like this kind of toothless, uh, warm, fuzzy, kumbaya kind of environment um, that is just kind of anything goes. And, and um, they see it as kind of opposed or antithetical to truth. Like you can either have grace or you can have truth, but you can't have both. You got to pick, pick one. Actually, Pastor Dave did a, a really helpful teaching on this, on this misconception that a lot of people had. And he used the illustration of a teeter-totter. He said, it's, it's, it's as if some people think that grace and um, truth are on opposite ends of a teeter-totter and you can only have one or the other. But the fact is, the opposite of grace is not truth. The opposite of grace is legalism. And the opposite of truth is lies. And so we are to be a people who replicate the love of God. We're to be a people of grace who display his undeserved favor and truth. In fact, here's what John says about, uh, about Jesus. This is John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Not grace or truth, but grace and uh, truth. Jesus, full of undeserved favor and truth. That word truth in Greek is aletheia, literally means to be uncovered. You can think of Jesus as God uncovered. And so we're to be a people of truth. We're to be a people who are uncovered. We don't wear masks, metaphorically speaking. Well, let's go to our Romans 7 passage and we'll begin at verse 4. And so Paul says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in regard to the law, to religion, put to death to legalism, to rule-based living, to performance-based religion through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might, here it is, bear fruit for 
God. All right, so we're praying to God and we're saying, God, I wanna be fruitful. I wanna bear fruit for you. I want Jesus to be displayed through my life. I wanna be effective. I don't wanna be ineffective. I don't wanna, I don't wanna, be, um, I don't wanna be wasteful. I, I want Jesus to be displayed. I want the fruit of the Spirit to be displayed through my life. And God says, awesome, that's great, fantastic. Here's how you do it. You die to the law. You die to rule-based, performance-based religion. You die to legalism. You die to religion with all of its built-in redundancies and you live under my grace. You free fall into grace. And God says it's my grace, my goodness, my kindness that leads you to change your thinking. God says it's it's not my punishment, it's not my wrath, or it's not fear of me, it's my love and my grace that will propel you to bear fruit. It's the way of grace. You know, in the last couple of years, uh, as we've lived with COVID, we've seen some beautiful things um, displayed out of the church. Beautiful things. Um, and I don't mean just Sobel Church, but you know, the Church of Jesus has just, there's been extraordinary expressions of grace during these last couple of years of COVID. In fact, a term was coined, uh, pandemic grace is the term, used to describe this beautiful outflow of God's undeserved favor through his people during uh, this time of pandemic. And I, I saw it, I saw people uh, reaching out and loving others, unlike any other time that I can remember, uh, people reaching out to neighbors with acts of kindness and love and care, you know. And so I've seen more acts of kindness in the last two years than in any other two-year stretch that, that I can recall. Beautiful expressions of the church being the hands and feet of Jesus in very gracious, practical ways. Um, I watched our, our little daughter church, uh, Blue Water Church, just... Uh, I watched grace flourish during the pandemic. Um, I was there, of course, in 2020 and for the first uh, few months of 2021. And uh, Blue Water has a drop-in ministry. And so when COVID kind of shut things down and we could no longer operate our drop-in ministry in person, I was concerned uh, because there were people who would uh, go to the drop-in and they would eat the meals that were served there and those meals were very, very important to them. Uh, number of people kind of living on the margins who relied on that. And so when we couldn't do that anymore, I was concerned for these people. But volunteers, without my prompting, they just did it. Um, God stirred in their hearts, and this is an expression of grace, they just started preparing meals uh, really high quality, delicious, homemade meals um, and uh, that would be put in takeout containers and frozen and then delivered to these very same people right to where they lived. And uh, I've completely lost track of how many meals have been delivered um, in the last two years, but it's, it's, it's measured in the thousands at this point. Uh, it's an incredible thing. In fact, I remember getting a phone call one day from a representative from the municipality who said, I hear your church is doing this. I thought we were gonna be in trouble. And they said, we wanna help. This is really needed. And uh, you know, there was a mission agency in Winnipeg that ended up sending us $3,500 because they just wanted to help. Uh, 
you know, here's money to, to buy some more groceries. It's a beautiful thing, just beautiful displays of, of grace and compassion and, and care, pandemic grace. And so during the pandemic, there have been some exceptionally beautiful things displayed in the church. Now, unfortunately, in those same two years, there have also been some things displayed out of the church that are not particularly beautiful. It's no secret that um, there's a lot of different opinions about COVID and things that have to do with COVID. It's a lot of differing opinions in the culture at large and also in the church. And you know what, that's not a problem. Um, I think one of the things that makes the church so interesting is the broad array of opinion on any number of subjects. And I think if we did a poll here today with you, our SCF Online family, and, and we said, well, what do you think about this issue and this issue and this issue? I'm sure we'd have lots of um, different opinions, lots of different points of view. We could talk about the war in Ukraine, and we'd have different points of view and different, um, different ideas and different thoughts. We could talk about Roe versus Wade. We could talk about the upcoming provincial election. We could talk about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and their, their court case. All of these things that are, you know, kind of current cultural conversations. It's okay that we have a whole array of opinions on these things. In fact, I think Christian people ought to be thoughtful thinking people. I think we should have robust, uh, well thought out points of view on things that are current cultural uh, conversations. For too long, the church has offered simple answers, simplistic, too simple um, answers to very complex questions. And we've lost uh, credibility, I think, because of that. So having a broad array of opinion in the church about any number of topics is, is certainly okay. But what's not okay is Christians uh, shaming other Christians on social media, uh, judging other Christians who don't subscribe to their opinion. You know, that's not okay. A broad array of opinion, that's fine, that's great. But shaming and bullying, uh, not okay. You know, we, it's okay to have an array of opinions, but we must hold our opinions with grace. And shaming and bullying and judging is not the way of grace. It's not the way of kindness. It's not the way of the kingdom. It's not the way of Jesus. And in the last couple of years, we've seen um, really social media become a rather toxic place, uh, a toxic space for Christians who engage in moral grandstanding and, and the moral showboating and where opinion becomes kind of weaponized and, and division and bullying and judging and mocking. That doesn't make Jesus attractive. That's not an effective strategy for evangelism. It actually stunts um, the work of the kingdom. I love reading in Acts chapter two. We actually did a little series of, of talks last fall called Reset, looking into Acts chapter two in the early church in Jerusalem. I love that early church. They were so diverse. There was um, Gentile converts to Judaism as well as Jews. Now they're together following Jesus. There was a whole bunch of different languages spoken in that church. It would have been difficult to communicate. There were slaves and slave owners, rich and poor, male and female, like if any church should have 
been kind of divisive, it should have been that one because they were so diverse. And yet what we read in Acts 2.42 is that, that this group of believers devoted themselves to fellowship. Koinonia is the Greek word. It comes from koinos, meaning common. This diverse group of Jesus followers in the first century devoted themselves to what they had in common. And what they had in common was Jesus. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a building. They didn't have a budget. They had Jesus and they had each other. And as a result of their devotion to their connectedness in Jesus, well, it just enabled them to express such grace, to be couriers of the grace of God to the community in which they live to the extent that Luke uh, writes that they found favor with all the people. See, when there's such a, a unique and powerful expression of unity in the midst of diversity, man, that's compelling and that's, uh, that's attractive. That's real unity. Well, I got off track there. Let's go to verse five. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the parts of our body to bear fruit for death. Oh, by the way, Romans 7 is a tough, it's a tough chapter. These are tough, difficult verses. These are not ones that you just kind of glance at and go, oh yeah, here's, here's what that's saying. This, you got to dig into these uh, verses. In fact, one, one way that I find um, can be helpful when dealing with a tough verse is to read it backwards. I don't, I don't mean like, you know, read the verse backwards. Um, and I also, were you around church world in the 80s? Um, if you were, you might be familiar with the term backmasking. Remember that? Um, so back in the 80s, there was this notion, um, didn't last long, but this notion that there were rock songs that had uh, satanic messages embedded in them. And the only way that you could um, hear these satanic messages was to play the, the music backwards. And I remember being in Bible college and painstakingly listening to uh, Stairway to Heaven backwards to try and listen for this embedded satanic message. It was, it was a, a pretty uh, silly thing. So I'm not suggesting that we, we read scripture backwards to try and get some uh, secret or special message. I'm just talking about taking some of the words, some of the phrases and reading them backwards can be helpful. So, you know, we read in this verse, sinful passions, sinful passions were aroused by the law. So you can read that backwards. The law aroused sinful passions. The law aroused sinful passions. Under the law, sinful passions are aroused. If you're under grace, sinful passions are not aroused. It's really that simple. So will you, as a follower of Jesus, just free fall into grace? Will you trust the grace of God to be your teacher, to teach you to say no to sin? Will you trust the grace of God to be your teacher, to teach you uh, godly living as opposed to rules? Uh, let's go to verse six. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. There's a ton of things we could actually say about this verse. Um, but for the purpose of today, we just wanna draw attention to that word serve. 
Sometimes grace, I've, I've hinted at this already, but sometimes grace gets a bad rap that it's just kind of this toothless, soft, uh, anything goes, easy going, lax, kind of like a passive lying in a hammock kind of thing. That is not grace. Grace is not passive. It is active. In fact, notice this word serve. Grace, it's grace that gives you a whole new way to serve. You know, sometimes the way people serve is, um, has a lot to do with oughts and shoulds and uh, guilt motivation, right? It's like, well, you know, I guess, I guess I'm gonna be helping in day camp this year because, uh, you know, Jenna, uh, she darn near begged me uh, and how do you say no to Jenna? She's so sweet. So I said, yes, and I'd feel guilty if I didn't, right? Is that familiar at all? Uh, not that Jenna tries to do that. She's, she certainly doesn't. I'm just picking on her as, a, as, as an example. There's a new way to serve. Grace provides a new way to serve, and it's not a guilt-driven motivation. There is a new way to serve and it's animated and it's motivated from within, from this new heart where Jesus is. And he says, you get released from the law. You get released, uh, you get released from the have tos. You get released from the, the musts, the shoulds and the oughts. You get released from the, uh, from the uh, guilt motivations and you you get to start living under the want-tos. You get to start living under the get-tos. So you have a new heart. Christ lives in you. He's changed what you want. He's changed your desire. You're a slave to righteousness, like we talked about last week. You're eager to do what's good. You're zealous for good deeds. Well, Jesus Christ is animating and motivating from within in real time. It's safe to follow your heart. That's where Jesus is. He's leading and directing you from within in real time. It changes everything about how we serve. It's no longer the oughts and the shoulds and the guilt. It's the want to, it's the get to. It's animated and motivated by the indwelling spirit of Jesus. You know, there's a verse in Psalms that I like. It's uh, Psalm 37, I think it's verse four. And the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not that he'll fulfill all of your desires. He's not like Oprah saying, and you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. No, he puts the desire, he gives you the desires of your heart. He puts them there. And so Christian, it is safe for you to follow your heart. Jesus Christ is in you. He's changed what you want. He's given you a new heart. You can follow him. There's a new way to serve. Let's go to verse seven. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is it bad? Is it evil? Far from it. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So there Paul is saying, hey, the law actually did some good things for me. It, it showed me my sin. It's like Paul is saying the law is like a magnifying glass that just enlarges sin and makes it so clear and obvious and apparent to Paul that, man, I've got a problem. Um, I need a rescuer, I need a savior. You know, we used to, we used to play with uh, magnifying glasses when we were a kid. We'd go outside, we'd look at ants and, and we'd make them appear very large. Of course, then we figured out how to barbecue them uh, using the rays of the sun, that wasn't very nice. But Paul says the law is like a magnifying glass. It just makes our sin so large and apparent, helping us to see our need. 
And so Paul says, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. So the law alerts Paul uh, to his sin problem. And here's uh, verse eight. But sin, here's, here's another opportunity to read backwards, okay? But sin taking an opportunity through the commandment. So the commandment provides an opportunity for sin. That's what the law does. The law makes opportunity for sin. But sin taking an opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind for apart from the law, sin is dead. Well, how is, how is sin dead um, from the law? How does, how does that happen? Um, when you give up pursuing rule-based religion, when you give that up, when you give up following the way of rules, all of a sudden sin dies. Is it, is it magic? No, it's Jesus. The law says do. Jesus says done. The law says perform. You got to get it finished. Jesus said it is finished. Now just rest in me. We looked, as I mentioned, we looked last week in Titus chapter two, where, where Paul writes, grace teaches us to say no to sin. Law excites sin. Law gives sin an opportunity. Law makes sin large. Uh, grace says no to sin. The way of rules is the way of sin. The way of Jesus is the way of grace. And grace says no to sin. If you want to do yourself a favor sometime, read uh, John chapter 15. It's a beautiful chapter. And Jesus talks about resting in him. Um, he is the vine. He, he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know, abide in me, rest in me, and I'll produce fruit in you and through you. Rest in me, not in religion, not in effort, not in performance. Rest in me, abide in me. Well, let's go to verse uh, 9. I was once alive apart from the law. Well, then what happened? Well, when the commandment came, sin came to life and I died. It's like Paul says, the law killed me. The commandment came in. I thought I was going to sin less, but when the law arrived, I actually sinned more. Sin actually increased. And you know what? Don't we see that? Like in our day, some of the strictest churches, some of the strictest religions in the world, some of the strictest denominations, some of the strictest Christian movements. You know, everybody's walking around all strict and religious and pious and acting all uh, holy. But underneath, there are thousands of abuses, thousands of heinous and shockingly evil sins. Well, where do they come from? Well, Jesus, Jesus told us that the way of religion is like a whitewashed tomb. It looks good on the outside, but inside it's full of rot and corruption. It's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to sin. There is no other way. Um, religion, you know, it looks, it's like wax fruit, right? Looks good, looks like it should be delicious until you bite into it and then it's like, yuck. You know, sometimes we think that Ungodliness is when we deviate to the left. But really, ungodliness is any deviation from the, from the character 
of Jesus who is full of grace, whether to the left or to the right, it is possible to be stricter than God. Well, let's go to verse 10. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. I thought it was gonna, I thought it was gonna be good. I thought it was gonna bring life, but it proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment. There, we can read backwards again. The commandment makes an opportunity for sin. The commandment makes opportunity for sin. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. By the way, that idea of, of the law or the commandment or the rules making an opportunity for sin, this is the third time Paul said that in this uh, short passage, right? So why would, why would we ever want to try and balance grace and rules? That's like trying to balance victory with defeat. Why would we wanna do that? Why would we wanna balance life with death? Why would we wanna balance light with dark, right? It's God's grace. God's grace is the way to have genuine victory over sin. Well, let's go to the fourth point uh, today. So number one, God's grace propels godly living. God's grace propels strength. God's grace propels fruit bearing. And point four is this, God's grace propels victory. You wanna live a victorious Christian life? Grace is the way. It's the only way. Not rules, not religion, not legalism. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And notice this phrase, read it. Let's read it slowly and carefully. And the power of sin is the law. You can do that backwards thing again here. The law gives sin power. And the power of sin is the law, but Thanks be to God who gives us the victory, not through religion, not through rules, not through performance-based living, but through our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom John says is full of grace and truth. So I guess, I guess it's kind of up to you, it's kind of up to me to make a choice. You can have Jesus or rules. You can have grace or law. You can have Christ or Moses, right? What are you gonna choose? I don't quote uh, Martin Luther very often, but you might have seen uh, before the, the, the sermon time today a quote uh, from him. I just wanna show that quote again. Martin Luther uh, wrote, Christ is no Moses, no exactor, no giver of laws, but a giver of grace, a savior. He is infinite mercy and goodness, freely and bountiful given to us. Amen to that. Well, a couple more very, very quick verses. Romans 6, 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Free from the law. Remember the old hymn, free from the law, oh, happy condition. Free from the law, under grace. This is Galatians 5.1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back, don't go back. Now that you know it's Christ, don't go back to religion, don't go back to rules, don't go back to law, don't go back to performance-based 
living. Don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to those guilt-motivated oughts and shoulds. Christ is too good. We have it too good in Jesus to ever want to go back. Well, let's review these four points one last time. God's grace propels godly living. God's grace propels strength. God's grace propels fruit-bearing. And God's grace propels victory. The way of grace is enough. Jesus is enough. Grace is trustworthy. Free fall into his grace is trustworthy. Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus plus nothing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We trust you. We trust your grace. In Jesus, we've never had it so good. Jesus, we celebrate today the freedom that we have in you. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And you've set us free. You've made a way. A way for us to walk out of the cell of slavery to rules and to go free. In your amazing grace, you allow us to be ourselves, to trust our new heart where you live in us, You allow us both to be ourselves and to express you at the same time. It is amazing. We thank you for your grace. We agree with you. We confess together today that your grace is sufficient. It's enough. It's amazing and it's trustworthy. You, Jesus, are amazing and trustworthy. We love you. Amen. God bless.